I must say, this is the first time I've ever experienced, just before getting into the pulpit, finding out that I have been traded <laughs> with another church. Let's pray. Father, you're so kind to us and you're so gracious. And we see that in the Lord Jesus, but we see it every day of our lives as you continually give us what we don't deserve. What we do deserve, you hold back from us because of your mercy. And what we don't deserve, you give us because of your grace. You are such a kind Father. And you've not only given us your grace in, in so many other ways, but most of all through Christ and, and him to us through your word. And so we praise you for these two things, your spirit and your word that change us and conform us to the likeness of Christ. Change us today so that we love Jesus more and can worship him more fully with less inhibitions, with less temptation and sin and habit patterns that would inhibit us from worshiping him in a way that he's due. We ask you, Father, to bless us now. Bless us by your Spirit, through your Word, for we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 13 this morning. Same text that we looked at last week, except last week we stopped around um, verse 12 or so, and today we'll go a little further. There's a couple of things that I specifically want us to talk about, and as we prepare to plant a new church just a few weeks from now, the topic of making disciples has taken a place of fresh significance for us. This is our mission. Christ's final word has become our greatest concern. His commission to us is clear. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a glorious commission that is. Beloved, there's no ambiguity about this. There's no ambiguity about the church's mission. We are sent to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but the manner in which we are to make disciples is not intuitive to the sinful mind. Even the Christian mind. And left to our own wits and creativity, we would come up with all kinds of ways to make disciples. And all you have to do is, is watch the Western church for a little while. And you see, that's, that's what we're known for around the world. The pageantry, the programs, the, the new strategies and the new ways of making disciples. And, and that's the way it is. However, if we're going to make disciples in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord and according to his word, we need something greater than creativity. We need revelation. And we have received the revelation already because we have God's word. We need Jesus to show us in his word how to make disciples. And 
And so he does, at least in part, here in our text for this morning. We're all familiar with this narrative and justly surprised by Jesus' actions when he comes that night to the upper room and they're about ready to take part in the Lord's table. Actually, he's about to institute it. They thought they'd come for the Passover feast. He was about to institute the Lord's table. And to everyone's shock and surprise, rather than Jesus doing something royal-like, king-like, he takes his tunic off, he strips down, and wraps himself in a towel and takes a basin and begins washing their feet. You know this story. We're familiar with the narrative. But our surprise here as we see this, as if for the first time, we may be surprised if we're thinking, if we're trying to see this with new eyes, we will be surprised at what Jesus did, but our shock is nothing compared to that of Peter and the other disciples. Frankly, a foot-washing slave was not exactly their idea of a Messiah. That's not what they had in mind. They had imagined him to be a conquering hero who would save God's people from national oppression and set the captives free. For So it was foretold by the prophets. When Jesus came, however, he did not come to judge the world but to save it from the just and holy wrath of God. His mission, the mission of his first visit to the world was to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. He came to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we would be healed. We would be saved. God would cause the sin of us all to fall upon him. And he would be slaughtered like a lamb to bear the punishment that we have both earned and deserve. And this is why he came. He didn't come as a conquering king. He didn't come as a royal prince, but rather as a humble servant. In fact, even in his own words, he said this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His disciples, however, were having a hard time accepting this oft-repeated teaching on the high calling of humble service. They didn't like that. They didn't get it. They didn't really want it. And this becomes abundantly clear when Jesus rounds the table, so to speak, as he is working on washing the disciples' feet, and I take it that a few of them had already been washed and, and made no protest, though they probably had no idea what Jesus was doing. He would explain later, I suppose they assumed. I assume they assumed. But when he gets to Peter, everything changes. And we pick up with that in verse 6. John 13, verse 6. And here's what we read. So he came to Simon Peter, and he, that is Simon, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who would betray him. And for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Now you remember in the previous message that I preached on this text, and we talked a lot about Jesus' model of humble service and how we as his disciples need to follow his example by laying aside our pride and taking on the posture of a servant in our ministry of making disciples. And this morning, that, that will also be emphasized because that's the main point of the text. However, I, I really want to focus on two things in particular. Namely, number one, the true meaning of bathing and washing. And number two, the humble practice of washing feet. The true meaning of bathing and washing and the humble practice of washing feet. Now let's deal with the first one first, shall we? Number one, the true meaning of bathing and washing. Bathing and washing are key terms in this passage. They're repeated again and again. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, showing them with what humility they are to serve others, even though they are apostles of the king. But Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at, so he protests, and he says this, never shall you wash my feet. In fact, in the original language, there's a double negative here that serves to kind of stress the emphatic nature of Peter's outburst. Never shall you ever wash my feet. In Greek, there is no way to make this statement stronger than it is right here. Peter saw Jesus as Israel's king. He saw Jesus as Israel's king, and he was determined to rescue his king from this indignity. You take off your clothes, you wrap yourself with a towel, you're, you, you, you're barefooted, I assume, and you're washing our feet? Never. What are you thinking? Never will you wash my feet. The king will never wash the feet of his subject, for I am not worthy to be washed by you. It's kind of a reflection back on John the Baptist, isn't it? When he's talking about Jesus, he says, uh, the, sand, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And Peter was in the general vicinity of that kind of thinking, although maybe misguided. Clearly, in any case, Peter missed the meaning on a couple of different levels. He missed what Jesus was trying to teach on a couple of different levels. First of all, he missed Jesus' teaching that in the economy of heaven, the greatest in the kingdom of God will be slave of all. 
And in this case, that was literally true. The greatest in the kingdom is Jesus Christ, and he is slave of all. Peter was thinking in human terms, and so we often do. He was thinking of leadership and authority as as the world thinks of leadership and authority. Leaders must be strong. They must be commanding. They never flinching, never showing weakness. But here was Jesus scandalously taking on the very form of a common servant, a common slave, the lowest of the slaves. Peter just didn't have a leadership category in his mind to explain such behavior. This isn't how leaders work. This is, nobody in Rome does this. Nobody in Greece does this. Not even our own religious leaders. Nobody stoops before other people. That's not how you lead. And so he missed Jesus' point about servant leadership. The second, Peter missed the meaning of washing and bathing. Look at verses 8 through 10. Uh, I've already read it, but let's do it again. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands in my head. In other words, give me a bath. And Jesus says, now pay attention to this, because we're going to spend most of our time here. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, that is really interesting. In fact, uh, it's a little bit hard to catch at first what exactly Jesus is talking about. Um, I want you to notice the distinction here that Jesus makes. And this is important because if all Jesus wanted to do was to communicate to his disciples the need for them to be extraordinarily humble, then he could have said so. He could have just said to Peter, Peter, listen to me. Just just go with this. I'm trying to teach you a lesson about humility, and you're not getting it. This is not humility. I'm not seeing humility. Give me some humility. This is what it looks like. You need to see me behaving in a humble manner before the ones that I'm leading so that you'll get the idea that leadership in the economy of heaven is all about being servant of all. And Jesus didn't say any of that. He chose to say this instead. He reveals to Peter and to us the symbolic difference between bathing and washing. He had something else in mind here, And it's really interesting, as you're looking at the language and the structure of what John has written here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's very common throughout the book of John to find double meanings. And you see that periodically throughout. But here is what I'm calling layered meanings. It's more than than just a double meaning. And Jesus is putting this together in an extraordinary way. First notice in verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Verse 10. He who has been bathed, and I take bathed and washed here to be the same, needs only to wash his feet. There's wash being used a little differently. But is completely clean, and you are clean. And clean is the issue here. What does it mean to be clean? What does it take? To become clean. 
So in other words, Jesus is saying very simply, one who has already taken a bath doesn't need to take another bath when his feet get dirty. I mean, that would be silly. You get up in the morning, you take a bath, and then you walk around the dirty streets. Uh, in most places of the world, the streets are dirt. Remember when Kairat from Kazakhstan visited us the first time? Remember, some of you remember what he kept saying, he kept repeating. He kept saying, I love this country. Look, and he would stick his foot out and say, no dust. Because <laughs> everywhere he goes in you know, the third world countries where he lives, there's dirt and dust everywhere, not so much here. But in Jesus' day, that's the way it was. And still is over there in most places. So you take a bath in the morning, and you walk anywhere, you're just going to get dirty feet. And Jesus, the, the analogy he's saying is, listen, this is common sense. You take a bath in the morning, you walk the streets, your feet get dirty. You don't need to take another bath, just wash your feet. But he's using that as a picture to teach us something. Um, so what is bathing and what is washing? I want to submit to you that bathing here must represent regeneration or, more common term, salvation. It must represent being born again. It must represent God's work of saving grace in the heart of a, of a believer, of a sinner who now believes. It is a symbolic way or a picture of the fact that God makes people spiritually clean. God makes people spiritually clean. Salvation is a kind of spiritual bathing, a washing. By grace through faith, a sinner is washed clean. All his guilt is cleansed away by the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus even says here in verse 10 that his, this bathing makes one Watch this, verse 10, completely clean, completely clean. Whatever this bathing is, it makes you completely clean. And so that's, that's so much so, in fact, so clean, in fact, that once you have been bathed once, you never have to do it again. And that's what Jesus is saying. You've already, you've already been cleaned. You've already been scrubbed clean by my word. You are already clean. You don't need another bath. You had one. That's all you need, one. He's got to be talking about salvation. He's got to be talking about being justified in the eyes of God, being declared righteous in the eyes of God. So one who is bathed is one who is born again. He's saved, redeemed, justified, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and nothing in all the world can change that. Once you are declared righteous, you are always righteous in God's sight. Once you have been redeemed, you are always redeemed. Once you become a child of God by faith, you are adopted into God's family, you are always a child of God. It doesn't need to be redone no matter what. Once you are bathed, you are clean by virtue of your union with Christ. And from that moment on, God sees you as clean and pure and holy. How clean, pure, and holy? How clean, pure, and holy is Jesus? As far as God is concerned, forensically, legally, when he looks at your, your debit sheet, it says paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. It's clean. But that doesn't mean Christians don't sin, does it? 
How many of you know that? All right. Some of you don't. Okay, so this is a lesson for you. <laughs> you men, just ask your wives and they'll tell you. You get a good lesson in homardiology, the study of sin. We all know that we're still sinners. Yes, we're children of God. Martin Luther said it this way, trying to explain how how you could be... um, he could be a child of God and still sin, and, and his Latin phrase was uh, simo justus et peccator, which means at the same time justified and sinful. I'm still a sinner, but I've been declared righteous because of Christ in God's sight. I am clean. I have been bathed. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't mean I don't still sin. To the contrary, every honest believer would have to admit that this side of heaven, we are sinners all, and we are sinners still. And this is why we need our feet washed on a regular basis. If bathing the whole body is a picture of salvation, then washing the feet must be a picture of what, class? Sanctification. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever seen that here? I never have until I studied it for this purpose. What is sanctification? We've got to be clear on this, and these are big theological terms, so let's just explain it. Sanctification, okay, justification is when you're born again, you're saved, God declares you righteous, you become a child of God, it's the new birth, okay? Sanctification is your growing into Christ-likeness. It's that day-by-day changing out of the old life into the life of Christ, becoming more like him. It's your pursuit of holiness. It's the Spirit's work in you, conforming you to the likeness of Christ in very personal and practical ways. Sanctification speaks of our becoming progressively more holy by the power of the Spirit and the Word And so, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, the primary lesson of the need for extreme humility in our service of making disciples, he does so using practical metaphors for justification and sanctification. And both, when you think about it, are very humbling teachings. Think about justification, for for example. Again, to be justified means to be declared righteous to be declared righteous. And justification, we learn of our complete inability to save ourselves from the penalty of sin. As I have so often said around here, there is a righteousness that we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn until God gives it to us. And he does that in justification. And it's humbling because we have to admit that we have nothing to contribute to that except our sin. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what poor in spirit means? It means you view yourself as spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing to offer God but my sin. It's a very humbling teaching. The only way a sinner can be saved is by the sovereign mercy and grace of God on the merits of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. And that's our every hope. It's far more than we need. And likewise, in sanctification, we learn that even after God declares us righteous because of Jesus' active and passive obedience on our behalf, 
We are still sinners who need daily cleansing in order to maintain fellowship with our Father. Every day of our lives, we need to pray with David, for example, in Psalm 51, when he was addressing his own sinfulness, he said this, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And that needs to be the cry of every believing heart. God, praise you that I am righteous in the sight of Jesus, but I know I'm still tempted and I know I still sin and I want to maintain fellowship with you, but I need you to wash my feet. I admit I'm a sinner and I admit that what I just thought or did was sinful. Please cleanse me. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sin and to cleanse us, to wash us. He washes our feet day by day. Jesus washes our feet. It's sanctification. This, I believe, is the true meaning of bathing and washing. And Jesus, the ultimate disciple-maker, is doing this teaching to teach in, in this way to teach his disciples the need for deep humility in our service to others as we, like him, make disciples. And that brings us to the second point. The first addressed the true meaning of bathing and washing, and, and now the second is the humble process of foot-washing. The humble process of foot washing. Look at verses 12 through 17. Now when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay, so now we know he's telling us, wash one another's feet. What does that mean? What does it mean? If I then, here's the question, if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And what does that mean? I think there are two answers to this question. One is primary, as I've already said, and the other secondary, but both are extremely important. And before we go on, however, let me just say, we need to be clear about one thing. Jesus is not establishing another ordinance. He is not establishing foot washing as an ordinance of the church. Um, although I think in the right context, with the right attitude, at the right time and place, it can be a beautiful thing. But this is not an ordinance of the church, and there are a number of reasons why that you can check out for yourself, but I think... Um, the proper conclusion is that it is not a sanctioned uh, ritual of the church. And here's why. I think the most important reason why is this. 
that elevating this practice into a ritual, a religious ritual, minimizes the profound lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Any sinner can wash someone else's feet by ritual. You don't have to be born again to do that. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit in you to do that. You don't even need the Word of God to do that. It's a ritual. Religious people do rituals all day long, all around the world. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, and it's easy. You don't have to worry about your heart. You just do the the thing. You just do the ritual. But Jesus is calling us to something far more significant and far more difficult. Far more difficult. Are you listening to me? Far more difficult. Some of you just woke up. I saw that. (laughs) He's calling us to something far more difficult. And that brings us to the first answer. What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, since I washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet? First, first answer to that question. Jesus is teaching us, again, that in the social economy of heaven, his disciples must see themselves as slaves of Christ and servants of people. His logic is something like this. If I, the Lord of glory, was willing to humble myself to take on the role of the lowest of slaves... How could you, my disciples, do any less? Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I have modeled for you and commanded you? And Jesus is calling us to the difficult work of banishing pride in the heart and all effort to promote and to preserve self in favor of representing him before men as a humble servant who lays down his rights and in some cases lays down our lives for the good of others and the glory of God. This is the primary meaning of what Jesus did and said in this text. Nevertheless, there's clearly another meaning that is also important and also is derived from the text and not inserted into it. If washing feet is a picture of sanctification, then when Jesus commands us to wash one another's feet, he is commanding us to help one another in our pursuit of holiness. We must help each other become sanctified or grow in our sanctification or grow in holiness in our likeness of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I got saved, there was a huge dichotomy between who I was and who Christ is and wanted me to be. In fact, though I've made progress over the years, by God's grace, the Spirit and the Word, I still have a long way to go. I still have way too much pride. Way too, way too much concern about, concern about self-promotion and self-preservation far more concerned about myself than I am Christ, but I'm growing. I remember who I was, and I am not the same man I used to be. Praise God, but I am not what I'm going to (laughs) be. By God's grace, by the end of my life, I won't be perfect, neither will you, but I hope more like Jesus. And you you know what I need to get there? I need you, and you need each other. No less than the great Puritan pastor Matthew Henry applies Jesus' teaching here by saying these words. 
Now I read this and I thought, I wish I had said that I could have never said this. <laughs> All the drafting and redrafting and redraft and never, this is beautiful. Listen to this. The duty, washing feet, is mutual. We must both accept help from our brethren and afford help to our brethren. This is a service of sanctification one to another. You ought to wash one another's feet from the pollution of sin. We cannot satisfy for one another's sin. This is peculiar to Christ. But we can help to purify one another from sin. We must, in the first place, wash ourselves. This charity begins at home, Matthew 7 says. But it must not end there. We must sorrow for the failings and fallings, fa follies of our brethren, 1 Corinthians 5. We must wash our brethren's polluted feet in tears. We must faithfully reprove them and do what we can to bring them to repentance, Galatians 6. And we must admonish them to prevent their falling into the mire. This is washing their feet. Praise God. That's so good. I needed to hear that. I think this nails it precisely. Jesus isn't talking about ritualism. He's talking about discipleship. He's teaching us that we need to be actively taking the posture of lowly servants who wade into, the, into other people's lives to encourage, to exhort, to correct, to rebuke, to restore, and anything else that is needed for them to become more like Jesus. And not only that, but I need to be one who invites others into my life to do the very same thing. And I don't mean everybody. Don't make a stampede to tell me everything you ever thought of me <laughs> and where I need to change. I get enough of those emails. <laughs> but I need a couple people in my life that I trust implicitly. And praise God, I have two or three who are willing to speak into my life. And probably more than that, who just don't do it very often. Now praise God for them. He teaches us that we need to be actively involved in one another's lives. And beloved, this is a, a humbling and awfully, often a messy ministry. But it is necessary and it is good. We need to be involved in one another's lives. We need to be washing each other's feet. As Kenneth Gangle once observed, first we ought to pray, Lord, wash me. And then we need to pray, Lord, help me wash others. If this strikes you as foreign to your Christianity, let me just take a couple of minutes to remind you that this is everywhere in the Bible. Some theologians believe that the book of Job was the first book in the canon, the text of Scripture. Job chapter 4, one of Job's friends was commending him before rebuking him <laughs> by saying this, Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. What was he saying? Job, I know you have been faithful to wash other people's feet. 
we have all seen it. And implicitly what they were saying, now we are here to wash yours. <laughs> and they weren't very good about it either. <laughs> Which is a whole lesson in itself. Psalm 26, verse 2, reads, Psalm 26, 2, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. What's he saying? He's asking the Lord, would you come and wash my feet, expose anything that needs to be cleansed away? Once, if this is David saying these things, then we know God answered his prayer. After the whole Bathsheba incident, God sent a brother by the name of Nathan. And he told this sweet story, or a tragic story, about the rich man who stole the little lamb who was the pet of the poor man across the street. And his company was coming and he slaughtered the poor man's pet to feed his friends. And David said, that man must pay. And I forget what the payment was, but it was huge. And Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. You have stolen your poor neighbor's wife. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, I need this. What do you think when people come to you and say, when your wife comes to you, men, <laughs> or your husband comes to you, ladies, and says, hey, we need to talk about something that I see in your life or something you just did or said. Do you say in your mind, whatever she's going to say, she's wrong? <laughs> of course you do. We all do. Your second thought should be, oh, God, help me. Help me to have an open mind because she might be right. I may need this. Psalm 141, 5, once again, the psalmist is saying, let the righteous smite me. It is a kindness and reprove me. Do not let my head refuse it. What's he saying? The psalmist was inviting other people to wash his feet. God, let a righteous man smite me in kindness and reprove me. Do not let my head refuse it. Don't let me be stubborn when someone comes to wash my feet. Proverbs 28, 23. He who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters the tongue. I love that. You know why I love that text? It's become one of my favorite texts in Proverbs because as a pastor, I, I need to speak into people's lives a lot. And it's always a fearful thing. It's always a fearful thing. And fear of man sometimes just grips me when I need to speak into someone's life. And that's so often why we choose not to do it, right? It's not a, fear is never a good reason to disobey. There, in fact, there isn't any good reason to disobey. And God reminds us again and again, my way is always best. It's always best. And here's an example. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. You know what? Some of my best friends around the longest term friends and closest friends are people that I had to enter conflict with. And by God's grace, we handled it biblically. And the relationship was not only restored, it was made better. Far better than it was before. 
far more communion in Christ because we're not just talking about the weather. We're getting involved in each other's hearts, getting involved in our souls, getting deep in the mire of sin and helping one another to get out of that. He who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. That's not a promise, but it is frequently what happens. Matthew 18, we're, we're all familiar with Matthew 18, right? It's, it's Jesus' teaching on what we normally call church discipline. In biblical counseling, at least around here, we have renamed it. That's not a biblical term. We're, we're renaming it um, uh, what are we renaming it? <laughs> it's not, uh, if Jason was here, he would, he would explain this to me. He would remind me. It's, uh, it's not confrontational. It's corrective. Corrective discipleship. Corrective discipleship. Matthew 18. This is where he says, if a brother sins, go to him. Go to him. Right? You remember that passage? And there's a whole, there's four steps to it. Eventually, if it gets to the end, he's, he's out of the church. But this is, This is corrective discipleship. This isn't church discipline. Church discipline, you know, that feels like, oh, step one, we're kicking you out of the church. That's not what it is. This is corrective discipleship. Listen, there's something in your life that's harming you. It's harming your walk with the Lord. It's harming your marriage. It's harming your relationships around you. It's harming the church. I just want to talk to you about a few questions. If your brother sins, go to him. What's he mean? Wash his feet. Don't go with a hammer. Go with a basin and towel. 1 Thessalonians. Now we're into Paul's teaching. 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Uh, The word word unruly here means undisciplined. Um, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, What's he saying? Everybody's going to need their feet washed. And they're going to need you to approach it in different ways at different times because some people just need encouragement. And then there's a whole, a whole litany of, of things after that. And then some people just need outright rebuke at the other end of the spectrum. And, and just be careful. I mean, if, if you see yourself as a hammer, you're going to see every... Every problem is a nail. And you just want to, you're just going to want to smack it. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what Jesus is modeling before us. And so, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. But admonish the unruly. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, um, this is Paul speaking to his young protege, Timothy, and he says this regarding elders, pastors, the Lord's bondservant, pastor, elder, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Here's why. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, elders are called to be actively washing people's feet. Wash the disciples' feet. Wash the sheep's feet. We have a dog in our house now. My mother-in-law has moved in with us, and she brought her German short hair. I love that dog. (laughs) I'm trying. 
And with all this rain, you know, put the dog in the backyard. And um, he's, uh, she's a little hyper, even in her old age. And she comes in, you try to grab her before she gets on. We have white. Whoever thought, why did we put white tile in our house? But we have white tile. And she comes in, and she just, she'll jump over you um, so she doesn't have to stop. And, of course, we're there to kind of catch her and wash her feet. She didn't want her feet washed. She wants to be left alone. She tracks it all over the house. What does that have to do with this? I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> But the elders, in this case, must be actively washing the disciples' feet, the sheep's feet. How about this, Hebrews? This is the author of Hebrews. We don't know who it was. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Listen to this. I love this one. Take care, brethren, take care that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another. How often? Day after day, as long as it is still called what? Today, so that none of you will be hardened. That is, so that none of you will be progressively hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceptive. Your desires are deceptive. Hebrews, I mean, uh, uh, um, Ephesians 4 tells us this. Paul calls them deceitful desires. And a lot of times in counseling, I just tell people, look, your desires are lying to you. They're deceitful desires. And if we just let ourselves be ruled by our desires and no one steps in to help and offer appropriate, gracious, humble, servant-like correction, they'll just be left and they will harden and harden and harden James 5, 19 through 20, James commends those who turn sinners back and save their soul from death. Jude, the very last book of the Bible, short of Revelation, Jude 22 and 23, have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. I told a man I was counseling recently, counseled him for a long time, and spent most of that time just on the gospel, and, and he just wasn't just wasn't buying it. And I told him recently, you can go to hell if you want to. That's where you're headed. But if you go to hell, you will only go there with both my arms wrapped around your legs. I will do everything in my power to keep you from going. And God hasn't transformed his heart yet, but I pray he will. The lesson here, beloved, is that when it comes to sanctification, we need each other. I need my wife. I need my kids. I need Jason and Brent. I'm not going to have Brent much anymore. I need other men in this body. We need brothers and sisters to encourage us and comfort us when we're down. Just and, and, and we're all pretty good at that. And that's, that's washing someone's feet. It's good. We need someone to comfort us when we're down, when we're discouraged. We need someone to strengthen us when, when the truth is something that we find ourselves doubting. 
We need someone to ask penetrating questions when we sin and rebuke us when we resist repentance and remind us of the promises of God and the glory of Christ and the everlasting reward for those who will persevere to the end. We need one another to wash our feet. In his excellent book, wonderful book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, we read this. He's uh, writing about James 5.16, which says, confess your sins to one another. And he says this, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship and common prayer and all the fellowship in service, may still be left to their loneliness The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as undevout and as sinners. So nobody, uh, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship because we dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among us. And so we remain in our sin, alone, living in lies and hypocrisy. But the fact remains, we are all sinners. Washing one another's feet means coming alongside someone as sinners and being honest about who we are and what we need. This is what Jesus did for his disciples. I mean, the foot washing was just a picture of what he had been doing all along. When they needed encouragement, he gave it. When he needed rebuke, he gave it. When he needed teaching, they needed teaching, he offered it. When they needed correction, they got it. It was always perfect. It was sometimes very gentle and sometimes very direct and and on, on occasion a little bit harsh. But it was all perfect, and it was for their good, for their joy. And so I would suggest that failing to do this in the local church may justly be called a failure to love. Again, Bonhoeffer writes, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin." And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe exhortation that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy and ultimate offer of genuine fellowship when we allow nothing but God's word to stand between us judging and comforting. You know, John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We've already established that. But 1 John 1.7 is such a wonderful, and I've often said this is, I think, the most important marriage verse in the entire Bible, and it says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, and walking in the light means having an open and honest attitude about your sin. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, If, no, let me restate that. This is the way it says, if the pronoun is plural. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. 
You see, it's sin that disrupts the fellowship. It's not personality. It's not background. It's not nationality. It's not skin color. Look, if it were personality, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know any of you. Oh, very few. I, so, I, if it were interest, I mean, there, man, I'm, just not, I'm not into sports. I don't fish. I like to turkey hunt because that's fun, but <laughs> most of you don't. I mean, there just isn't a whole lot we're going to have in common. We have Christ and we have sin. And we need each other. We need each other. You see, beloved, foot washing was never intended to be a ritual we mechanically perform to fulfill a religious duty. Jesus' call to wash one another's feet is a call to lovingly and humbly serve one another in the ministry of sanctification. Making disciples is not merely about broadcasting the truth or even pinpointedly teaching someone the truth. That's not discipleship. That's a part of it. Making disciples is about ministering the truth to one another's personal needs day after day as long as it is still called, what? Today. I just want to close by saying I praise God for, the, for those of you who are you're making the sacrifice week after week and some of you day after day in the biblical counseling ministry of Calvary Bible Church. You don't get paid. <laughs> you get crowns in heaven. It is so often a thankless job. Especially when someone comes and they say they want their feet washed, and then they won't let you take off their shoes to see what's there. And they get angry at you for trying. It's a thankless and sometimes hurtful, messy ministry. And yet you do it <laughs> week after week, and you never know what's coming at you next. Praise God for you. This is a ministry of washing people's feet. Others of you are meeting with people regularly for the purpose of directed discipleship. You're washing people's feet. You're helping them to grow and change. And I praise God for you who are doing that. And I suspect there are a number of you who, are, who have over the years, by the Spirit and the Word, you have gained some maturity and, and you're not discipling anyone else. You're not washing other people's feet because you're afraid. And I would just encourage you can I wash your feet for just a second? Come on. Take the risk. Step up to the plate. Make the commitment. You will be so glad that you did. Here's what I've discovered in my life as I meet with people for counseling, for discipleship. As I'm spending time with them, washing their feet, every time we meet, I'm washing their feet and the Holy Spirit is washing mine can't tell you how many times my wife and I are there counseling someone, a couple, and I know what the couple needs to hear me say. And I start saying it, and my wife kind of, <laughs> she shifts a little bit, and I know what she's thinking. And sometimes verbally I have said, honey, I know we need to hear this, but right now they need to hear this, 
and we'll talk about what we need to hear on our way home. <laughs> so I'm about, what is going to come out of my mouth is for us. But right now I have to say it to them. And it's the Holy Spirit washing our feet, washing our feet, washing our feet. And praise God for those of you who are actively doing it. And I encourage the rest of you, don't make excuses. Now, I realize that there are some people who just, because of your circumstance, you're, you're unable to get out or, um, or whatever. There, there are good reasons, perhaps. But let's make sure they're good reasons. The Great Commission is to make disciples, and we should all be doing that. You say, well, you don't know how sinful I am. It doesn't matter. Because here's the, here's, here's the moniker, here's kind of the motto over all of this. We are broken people in need of change, helping broken people in need of change. All of us. And it's, and, and it's about time that we just owned our sin. You have a sinful pastor. I sin every day. I sin every day. Every day I need my feet washed. And sometimes I need a brother or sister to step in. And that brings me to the last thing, and that is this. I praise God not only for the biblical counselors and for the disciplers and for some of you who would, who, would, who would not say, you know, I'm not formally a part of the discipleship ministry, but we know you. We know that you're in people's lives. We know that after this service, you'll be talking to people, engaging in personal ministry, and you're doing the foot washing as well. Praise God for you. And lastly, I just want to, Praise God for those of you who have had the courage to speak into my life on occasion. To encourage, so much encouragement. To exhort, not so much of that. To challenge, and on rare occasions to lovingly rebuke. I need it. And I praise God for you. You very few, and it should be few. We're not talking about parading your sin everywhere. We're not talking about group therapy. We're talking about you and one or two other brothers or sisters with whom you can be honest. With whom you can be honest. There's a lot of work to do, beloved. And as we're thinking about what it's going to mean for us to plant this church and for Calvary Bible Church to be smaller, may it also be true that our, t our community is greater, that our discipleship is more effective because we are more devoted to the Lord Jesus and his model of ministering as slaves, servants to one another, and washing each other's feet. Because you see, discipleship is not for the proud and self-preserving, but for those who will humble themselves to serve and be served. Amen? Let's pray. Father, only, only you could have come up with this. And this is a beautiful thing that we would have never thought of and never decided to do because you're calling us once again to deny ourselves, to be honest about who we really are, 
and to wash one another's feet. Lord, I see that happening here at Calvary Bible Church. I, I see it all over the place. And yet I know there's room to grow in this. We can be better at this. I can be better at this. And I pray that you'd make us better at this. And all of it for your great glory and for our inexpressible joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name.